Hi, my name is Anne McElhenney. And I'm Phelan McAleer. Welcome to the Anne and Phelan Scoop. And we are six and three quarter months into the two week flatten the curve lockdown. And Ireland has gone from being a land of saints and scholars whose clergy and people were known across Europe as educators and leaders. And now... Now, we're the only country, Ireland is the only country in, in Europe, Europe where you can't go to church. You can't go to mass. To go to mass. You can't go to mass in Ireland. You can go to mass everywhere else in Europe, just not in Ireland. Including Italy. Including Italy. And it's interesting, just a, a tweet from a guy called Mir Michael Kelly here um, on, uh, just amazing. In Italy, churches and restaurants have been open since May the 18th without major incident. The country has been open to international visitors since June the 1st without major incident. Dublin is the only city in Europe where it's forbidden to go to Mass. Um, but we, it's also forbidden... Says we remain a hermit kingdom. And we remain a hermit kingdom. Um, and it's not the only thing you can't do in Dublin. So there's suddenly there's a, new, there's a new lockdown in Dublin. So thoughts go out to our friends in Dublin who are trying to cope with all of that. Yes. And as you all know, we've had this huge news since the last scoop that uh, Justice... Ruth Gader Bin Bader Ginsburg um, yes. died on Friday um, with little more than five weeks to the election. This is a massive, massive news story. But Mary Kenny, you know, people obviously at this point, you've heard everything that needs to be said about Ruth, Ruth um, Bader Ginsburg. But I thought I actually thought Mary Kenny's to tweet. Explain who Mary, Mary Kenny is. A, is a, well, she was a radical feminist, actually, back in the 70s. Uh, he's now I would I don't know if she would call herself conservative, but certainly has matured her, her views. She'd call herself Catholic, I can tell yes. you that for sure, which is which already kind of so she, calls you something. She's an international columnist, but she, she's based in London and Ireland. She um, makes a really good point about um, about the death of Ruth Ginsburg. Um, and it's and it's interesting, it's something no one else has said, and I just think yes. it's just interesting to have something new to say about this, yes. about this event. So Ruth Ginsburg's death at 87, this is Mary Kenny saying this, is an astonishingly, astonishingly impressive tribute to American healthcare. She was, the, she was first diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2009. 11 years survival is amazing with this form of cancer. On this side of the Atlantic, few people survive two yeah, years. Yeah, I remember speaking to a, an oncologist when I heard about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's latest cancer, you know, and uh, he, I asked this this oncologist, you know, here's her medical background. Well, what's the story? And he goes, well, you know, and he was based in the United Kingdom system in the health national health services. Normally, when I am faced with a cancer, I can look at it and say, well, the last ten thousand people who've had this survived. You know, 20, for this length of time, twenty percent survived this, forty percent, and you know, you've got this chance and that chance. He says, the number of people who have survived her, uh, her cancers are minuscule, yeah. and it's because you know a lot of it. Maybe it's genetic, but a lot of it is due to the the amazing American healthcare service. It was you noticed it too. I rather the really bad healthcare service, nationalized healthcare service, the Lockerbie bomber. Oh God, yeah, I remember this. He was released from early from Scottish prisons because he had fatal cancer terminal cancer and he had he had under the scottish system oh yeah it was like and it was actually it was a compassionate thing he was let out to die he was going to die to go home to of die of course he survived for years because he went to libya and got the world's best medical treatment paid for by colonel Gaddafi, and survived for years and years and everyone said oh it's political hello it's this and those that and the other no he, he was given treatment there was there's treatment rationing in scotland 
you're not allowed to get certain expensive treatments. He went there and got all the expensive because treatment. Colonel Gaddafi was paying, and he yes. had deep pockets. Yes. Okay, Phil, we're talking about deep pockets and things like that. What else are we talking, well, talking about today? Obama, oh, of course, Obama gave the movie is well underway. We're working hard at it. Um, I want to update you on it. Don't forget, you can go to obamagatemovie.com to donate. But we'll be talking to Brian. I'll be talking to Brian Gadawa, my co-writer, about the film later on. Yeah, and tell us about Josh. You have a story about Josh Fox. Ah, yes, God bless him, Josh Fox. He brought you Gasland. He started the anti-fracking movement. But does Josh Fox really believe fracking, fracking is bad for the environment, or is he here grifter? A hard leftist wonders about this, which is very interesting. This attack's coming from the left. I will help him. We will help him fill in the gaps in his knowledge. And we have a big story from California, breaking news story from California this week um, about the unemployment benefit that has come up, come a little bit unstuck during the COVID. And actually, as I say this film, I realise that while you continue to talk through the rest of the teasers, I will run off because you forgot I the forgot prop. the visual. There's a visual. There's an actual have. visual. There's a helpful here. visual here, but I'm going to run and get that. Okay. And we have an interview with Marjorie Daniel Felser, uh, the president of Susan B. Anthony List, about her new book, Life is Winning. And Phelan is on the patio as well oh. in this show, making a perfect dessert you cannot miss. But I'm going to let Phelan start talking about Obamagate while I go and get the visual for that subsequent story. <laughs> off you go there, Phelan. Wonderful production values here. Uh, so what is Obamagate? Uh, so... It's the Obamagate movie starring Dean Cain, Christy Swanson, John James. It's coming out at the end of the month or the beginning of the next month, and Anne is back. Uh, you know, it's telling the truth about the investigation into the candidate Trump and then President Trump, the fake Russia story. And the reason we are having to do Obamagate the movie, which you can find donate to by obamagatemovie.com. Don't worry, we'll it, keep on mentioning that if you uh, didn't write it down the first time. Because the media are not doing their job. You know, as you know, as you may know, Peter Strzok has a book. Peter Strzok, one of the FBI lovebirds, he was a senior FBI agent. He, together with other agents, he investigated Trump. He was having an affair with Lisa Page and they tweeted conspiracy texts back and forth to beat the band. And... Uh, you know, he's now got a book out justifying what Can he Can I interrupt and say that this reminds me, I remember seeing a thing on television years ago and they said, and I, you know, and excuse me if this sounds too a bit naughty, but they, the thing was how to become a virgin. Have you, do you remember this? Mm. That how you could become a virgin was, if you weren't a virgin, was be, get, get on television, go public. So there's two examples of this, and obviously we're using virgin in a metaphorical sense here. Governor Cuomo of New York has a most shameful past in terms of COVID. Like, it is disgraceful what he did. And yet, here he is, he's written a book. Peter Strzok has the most shameful record at the FBI, recent record of the FBI, mm -hmm. of what he did during the Obama administration. It is it's shocking. It is disgraceful. And guess what he does? He comes out with a book. And it's kind of a way, I think, of going super public, of, of cleaning yourself well, somehow, right? See, it's helped assisted by see it's not it's, shameful. Oh no, you're right. It's, it's not shameful, yes. right? If it isn't if it isn't in the newspaper, if it isn't on the websites. So, you know, the media did their best to cover this up, right? Yes. And if it's not if it's not reported, it didn't happen. So he, it's easier for him to become a virgin again because he was never uh, deflowered in the first place. Oh, the boom boom. Look at you going on with that metaphor. <laughs> Love it, Phil. Yes. So the media are not doing your job, uh, their job. You know, and, and all these interviews with Peter Strzok. He, he, everyone interviewed him. Yeah, they keep repeating this canard, this cliche, that an investigation by the Inspector General 
found there was no political violence. Totally cleared. No, no, they actually you know, found there was no political bias behind the Trump investigations. And they always quote that. This is wrong. In fact, it's not just wrong, it's a lie because these journalists know better and they must know better. They're smart. What the Inspector General actually found was no documentary or testimonial evidence of such bias, right? But it was, they found no documentary or testimonial evidence to explain actions, right? For which, quote, no satisfactory explanations were offered. Right. So there were actions taken that could not be explained. Yeah. That, that led you to believe it was bias. But, there was, but to be fair, there's no documentary or testimonial evidence that it was bias. But in the absence of all other explanations, it has to be bias. That's what you, that's what you could say. But this idea that they find no bias is wrong. They actually did find bias. But he just didn't find uh, evidence. Oh, oh, sorry, he found un inexplicable things that they did that that that, that were, were anti-Trump and wanted to undermine his candidacy. But they were smart enough not to write down about it or talk about it uh, or confess to it. So, in other words, uh, you know. So then, then you have these Peter Strzok interviews, and it's just he's everywhere. But like softball interview after softball interview. One of my favorite recent ones is Anne Applebaum. Of the Atlantic magazine, and she's kind enough to to print it out and fold, and it's like nice. a joke. And yet, you yourself were used by the FBI and the Department of Justice as a scapegoat. You have said that the release of your personal text was not just unlawful but deliberate. That implies that there was some politics behind that decision. And struck. Look, I think it was illegal. I'm suing the FBI and DOJ right now. It absolutely was political. I think there is within the DOJ and the FBI the motivation not to get on the wrong side of a vengeful president. What does it feel like to have your personal life made public? To have private messages suddenly become the topic of a national political debate? It's been horrible. I know my actions played a part in that. Still, it's been horrible and I wouldn't wish it on anyone. I mean, complete nonsense. Can I just give you a little bit of advice there, Peter Strzok? And I'm sure, because you're very smart. You're very smart. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be the head of counterintelligence at the FBI for a period of time if you weren't really, really smart. Mm. Right, Phil? Uh, okay. And yet, you, you used your... You used your work phone to say all these things. You used your work phone. I mean, you know you don't, you could, you have a private phone, right? You have like a private phone where you write to your kids, right? Yeah, but, that's, yeah. but his wife will have access to that. Oh, and then that's the complicating factor that you're having an affair. Ah, yes, indeed. So, I mean, I just want to go back to Anne Applebaum, right? You know, what is it like to have, feel, have your personal life made public, to have private messages suddenly become the topic of a national political debate? They weren't, you know, they weren't, they weren't private. In fact, to my everlasting frustration with the Obamagate movie and the script of it, they have not published the really private messages between Strzok and Page. Now that would be a script, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, all I, all we have is uh, our we have private messages. We have, by the way, we have a lot of very good stuff. We have a lot of good stuff, right? But it does tantalize you that there is lots of stuff that we didn't get to look yes. at. You know, what we have is, is is private stuff that reflects on their political maneuvering as well. But 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 so the public the the messages that they have published are all related and you know this thing where they talk about anti-Trump messages they are not anti-Trump messages they are conspiratorial messages they are messages colluding 
in the undermining of the Trump campaign. He's not going to become president, is he? Yeah, that's what Lisa Page says. He's not going to become president. And, and Strzok says to her, no, no, we will stop it. We will stop it. What do you think that sounds like for an FBI agent who's meant to be impartial? And who's actually investigating the president at that very moment, right? I think we should go... So, in, in, you know, so the, we should go over now uh, to Brian Godawa. I spoke to him earlier about the right, the process of writing the Obamagate script and the process of writing with me. Okay, so I'm delighted to be joined by Brian Godawa, uh, my co-writer on Obamagate. Brian has been interviewed on the show before. Uh, he's a, a new type of author. Um, uh, an, as I said before, an inspirational author. He, um, he writes biblical fiction. Normally he writes biblical fiction books uh, and he fictionalizes them in an interesting and dramatic way almost like movies uh, um, and that's there's no coincidence because you are also a screenwriter uh, you were the writer of to end all wars uh, the movie that starred keeper sutherland and other movies uh, but you came on board to, to obama gate uh, to, to to help me tell this story in, a, in an entertaining and, and dramatic way i mean what welcome to the show brian thanks for having me yes <laughs> So uh, apart from the large sums of money and uh, <laughs> coffee uh, uh, that I fed you, why did you want to get involved in this Obamagate project? Well, I've always been fan uh, fan of yours and Anne's work ever since um, Mind Your Own Business, I think it was. You know, and you and I kept in touch over the years, and we've always been talking about, you know, I've let's, you know, I want to work with you guys as soon as you have opportunity, et cetera. And, um, you know, you came to me and, and when you'd already done the FBI love birds, and then in the last year, all this new stuff had happened, new information about Lisa Page, Peter Strzok, and more emails came out mm -hmm. that the Obamagate is based on. And you wanted to sort of like, um, give a third, a, 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 another fresh set of eyes, you know, from mm -hmm. another writer to help sort of catch things you may not have caught or whatever, just bring a, a, a new approach to it. But also you wanted to add other characters into it. And so um, I thought that that was just fantastic because I love the original play. It was hilarious. It was just their texts, but it was so fascinating. It kept me riveting, riveted. But now with all the new advancements, I thought it would be exciting to be able to add a little, add some from other key players, whether mm -hmm. it's James Comey or Brennan, and that that would help uh, expand it. But it's just the the Obamagate conspiracy itself is the biggest political conspiracy in history. The it's just it's phenomenally just uh, criminal, you know. And I thought just the opportunity to be a part to to work with you on one of your projects, and of all of them, this was just something I couldn't uh, I couldn't yeah. turn down. It's also phenomenally uh, entertaining, phenomenally dramatic. I mean, it's so it's such a wonderful story, and, and even though it's an awful story, uh, it's it's you know it's a classic Hollywood story. You have this love affair. You have yes. Russia. You have China. You have the president of of the United States of America. You have the FBI and the CIA. And you have, you know, it's like these classic movies where, where the agent is out in the field uh, or the, the guy is out in the field thinking his best friend back in the FBI headquarters is looking after him. And turns out he's the one that's been betraying him all along. And this is, you know, there's a lot of uh, talk in the media about Peter Strzok's anti-Trump texts. 
we know they weren't anti-Trump. They were anti-Trump texts, but they were so more, much more. They were, yeah. they were part of a conspiracy. You know, Trump's not going to win, is he? Uh, right, right. And, and he goes, no, we will stop it. This is the yeah. most senior counter espionage agent in the FBI saying we're going to stop him getting elected. This is the guy swearing to the FISA court that they had good reasons to open investigations into 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 candidate Trump. So it's it's a it's a great story also. I agree with you. And in fact, I, I should have I should have said that first, because really, I was drawn to it by the entertainment aspect of it. Yeah. I, I don't want to just do political crap because it's that's not who I am. I'm an artist. I love drama, hu you know, human, um, uh, uh, the human nature and all that kind of stuff. And that's what this play had. And uh, like you mentioned, there's nuance, there's subtlety, there's all kinds of interplay going on. The, the adulterous affairs beneath it all. But also, like you, you said, it's it's power plays in in Washington and all these all this subtext going on that it's actually quite a interesting dramatic uh, story to tell. But you also have uh, what I was I love so much is the verbatim aspect. That is, these are all literal texts or literal um, quotes and tweets. And th that's that's another. By the way, that's another element that that I helped to bring in on this new yeah. pass, which is. Um, since this all began to happen, key players, whether it's Comey, Brennan, even even Lisa Page, they all had Twitter accounts and they were tweeting and they had some very interesting tweets. Yes, yes. And so we went through them and we literally took all the tweets uh, you know, that we could, that were still available from the last few years. We found all the best tweets that would also be revealing of the, the character of who these people really are as they're trying to cover it up. And it's just, it's hilarious especially one of my favorite characters is Brennan. Cause he's like, if you read his tweets, they're, they are so hilarious because he's this grumpy old man who, who's angry at, at the fact that he knows he's getting caught, he's, he's being revealed. And so he's trying to cover up by, by expressing these extreme lines. Like, yeah. like, what does he say? There's one that he goes, you know, Donald Trump's press conference performance rises and exceeds the threshold of high crimes and misdemeanors. It was nothing short of treasonous. You know, yeah. I actually found these hilarious now that we know the context of what really happened. Yeah, I mean, that's either someone going crazy, crazy, um, you know, shouting at clouds or someone going crazy because they know that their crimes, their crimes and misdemeanors are going to be exposed. That's good. People need to realize that this this movie, the Obama gift movie, which, by the way, you can still help fund um, as we're recording this. We are less, just under 50% funded. I am sure by the time you're watching this, we will be over 50% funded. But please, you know, that's still 50% of the way. So please go to obamagatemovie.com. But you got to remember, this is all um, verbatim. Everything you'll see on the screen during the Obamagate movie is something somebody somewhere said or wrote in a memo or wrote in a text or a tweet. Often between lovers, sometimes uh, you know between FBI colleagues, they never thought Hillary was going to win, and they never thought these were going to be revealed. This is the thing people have to remember: Hillary was going to win, right? It was going to be a blue wave. They were going to own the the, the, the House. They were going to you know, own the Senate. You know, there was going to be no investigations. This was all going to be swept away, and then Trump messed it all up by winning. So. Um, what did you think of the verbatim aspect of it? This is unusual where you were, were restricted by 
normally as a dramatist you can invent characters and invent dialogue although although to end all wars was based on a true story isn't that yeah correct? it was but being based on it is very different from literally using verbatim it's a challenge but you know what what i loved about it what i always you know i've always loved this you've done this many times before i think it's a brilliant approach especially when you're dealing with politically hot topics because it makes it harder to critique to to mm -hmm. to hate if you're doing verbatim right but there's something about knowing that this is really what they said rather than how, what did the writers change to make it fit their paradigm, right? Now, look, there is some editing that we did. Obviously, they had thousands of emails, and we focused on the ones that were focused on the storyline, so we had to do that. But also, there are a lot of, um, you know, when you're doing text, you're doing abbreviations, you're making references like... Mm -hmm. The DD, which actually means deputy director, or I talked with Jim. Well, that's James Comey. And mm. so we the only thing we did was we would spell out some names like James Comey instead of Jim so that as people are watching, you know, they'll understand who they're talking about, even though, the you know, the, uh, the, the writers understood with each other. But that just helps clarify what's being spoken about, because otherwise it could become confusing with all these acronyms and stuff like that. But really... You know, that's the heart and soul of, of what we did as creatives and just finding, you know, the, the, the chief thing is finding that storyline. Mm -hmm. And there were so many emails and it, and it was truly fascinating, truly fascinating. But yeah, so, you know, you watch this and you go, wow, they're real. They really said this, you know, yeah. and it has that sense of authenticity. That's what I'm looking for, the, yeah. the authenticity, you know, but then it also makes it even more humorous because like we're talking about so many things have come to light in this last year. When you originally were working on this project, you know, it was in process, you know, mm -hmm. and it was still fascinating and enlightening. But now we've seen all the guilt has come out, the guilt of Comey, of Brennan, of Strzok, mm -hmm. and, and the deliberation with which before it was, you, you know, you were pointing at it through the texts and it mm -hmm. was so, but now we know it. So now when they say things like, you know, when, when um, one of my favorite characters, I think James Comey and, and uh, Brennan almost steal the show because their tweets are hilarious. So when you've got Jim Comey coming out there and if you followed his tweets, you know, he would come out there and try to speak like a, a Boy Scout who's trying to, to give calm, reassuring wisdom yeah. to the masses, you know, and he'd be going, he'd be doing a picture of, of nature and he'd say, so many questions, yeah. so many answers, you know, and it's so self-righteous and mm -hmm. in context now, it's hilarious. Yeah, there's an enormously funny aspect to everything that's there, and the humor comes right through it. Well, not the humor, just just the absurdity of it. Black I mean, humor, yeah. Black, black humor, humor. I mean, you had, you know, I mean, at one stage you have a Democratic congressman saying to Peter Strzok, "I believe you are the number one counter espionage uh, operative on the planet," and coming and and Peter Strzok goes, "Well, you know, that's kind, you know, you know, he's." he's but at the same time, at the same time, he's texting to love notes uh, uh, and 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 anti-Trump conspiracy notes to his mistress on their work phones, and it comes out even and, and then in the middle of that, his wife somehow gets access to his work phone, right? Is able to open his FBI work phone, and then phones uh, phones Lisa Page. Uh, to confront her about having an affair with his, with her husband, and it's like this is like a it's like an English play, you know, you know, ooh, her vicar, you know, and suddenly, you know, my trousers fell down. You know, it's it's got that real element of farce and teen love and all that. Um, it's it's a very so very very funny play. So I mean, if you want to help make this happen, 
go to obamagatemovie.com. One thing, one last thing I wanted to ask you, Brian, was I mean, what was it like working with such a great author as myself? Well, I found it humbling, enlightening, truly, truly, or, well, let's put it this way. I'll put it in the words of, of Lisa Page. Vomit, vomit, vomit. <laughs> Actually, you missed two other vomits. Vomit, oh, yeah, vomit. that's true. Vomit! <laughs> vomit. So, well, that's great to know, Brian. Um, I'm trying to think of, of, a, of, a, of a phrase from the, uh, from the emails that uh, I could respond to you with. But um, All I can say is when you called me, it was sort of like, Brian, you know, this is a good play, but I got to get it up to Oscar quality writing, you know? And so that's why I'm calling you. I remember those words that you spoke to me. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think in, in a world of verbatim dialogue, I'm not sure that's verbatim, Brian. Oh, okay. Okay, so I'm not calling you a liar, but, um, but uh, I'm, I'm just suggesting there may be some differences between my memory of the verbatim dialogue and yours. So Brian, thank you very much. Um, and hopefully it's going to be coming out, hopefully at the end of September, beginning of October. We're all looking forward to it. And uh, you, uh, the, the viewers of the Anna Film Scoop will be the first to know. Thanks, Brian. Well, I think that, I mean, that's great. We were really lucky that Brian um, agreed to work with you, yeah. even though you're a vomit, vomit, very difficult to work with, apparently. God, yeah. I can't imagine why. That's yeah. shocking to me. But just for everyone to remember, I think what's really important for everyone to remember here is that this, we're now, what are we feeling? We are about five weeks out from the election, about five weeks out from the election. I think it's really important that people realize that in that five weeks, Showtime are going to spend almost $100 million with their two-night dramatization of Jim Comey's book, The Comey Rule, you know, his self-aggrandizing book full of lies, full of making himself look like some kind of saint in all of this, in this complete debacle of what happened, this tyranny, actually, mm -hmm. that, of what yep. happened. Yep. Um, and they're basically going to do this. And, it's, and don't, forget the, don't forget the background of the Showtime show. Uh, initially, it was going to come out after the election, and the actors went nuts yeah. and said they'd do no publicity unless it could affect the election. They had to have it to affect the election. So we think it's important that people see the actual truth of what happened. We're not making up the script. Yeah. We're only using their own words. This is verbatim. So if you think that's important, that the truth gets out before the election, then please give what you can to obamagatemovie.com. Obamagatemovie.com. Give whatever you can, anything. And by the way, just showing up and giving a $5 or a dollar even really matters to us because it shows that people understand how high the stakes are yeah. here and yeah. how important it is that the truth comes out. So, so onward, onward to an, an old friend of ours. Now, Josh Fox, who was the director, producer, on-screen talent of Gasland 1 and Gasland 2. He's in the news a yes. little bit. Well, oh. not really in the news. So Jimmy Dore, he's a left-wing comedian and uh, he's not, but he's funny, he's not averse to calling out others on the left. and. He's, he's a quite funny guy. We saw yeah, no, him. no, he's good. We he's saw him with this other thing. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, his niche seems to be calling out people on the left or the liberal left or the centre. I think he likes to point out hypocrisy, yes. which is always amusing, yes. by the way. So he has a show, a uh, uh, YouTube channel, The Jimmy Dore Show. And he looks at, has a look at Josh Fox. Um, and let's first of all remind you who Josh Fox is. Josh Fox bought, brought you Gasland. 
He started. He, he started the anti-fracking movement. He lied so, about so much. He lied about his biography. He doesn't. Wasn't brought up in Pennsylvania. He was brought up in Manhattan. He lied about fracking, giving people breast cancer. He lied about fracking, polluting water. He tried to get our films removed from YouTube with yeah. bogus copyright changes claims. He tried to get Michael Moore's movie removed from from uh, from YouTube. So and then he had a play movie, uh, the, uh, the Truth Has Changed, where where he took, devoted quite a bit of it to attacking yourself and myself there, Anne. God bless him. Fabulous. And we did. Funny enough, we didn't try and get him closer. In fact, I bought a ticket to the performance. Look at you. You're right, because uh, I wanted to hear what he had to say. Um, but and uh, but and that was a, a, a part of the under the radar. Uh, festival at the New York Public Theatre. And uh, th let's hear what the, the New York Times had to say about that. The Public Theatre, one of the nation's biggest and most influential non-profit theatres, has abruptly shortened the run of a climate change activist's provocative one-man show, saying the creator, Josh Fox, had violated the theatre's code of conduct. Hmm. Um, so uh, Fox claimed they were suppressing the content of the show, but uh, the truth, the, according to the theatre, the, the truth, according to the uh, New York Times, the Truth Has Changed was cancelled following multiple reports of Josh Fox's violation of our code of conduct, huh. said a statement from the theatre. Hmm. In a subsequent interview, the theatre spokesman, Shariza Bola, was more specific, saying it was a series of verbal abuses to the staff. So, so bullying so, behaviour. Yes. Oh, dear. Yes. So let's hear what Jimmy Dore had to say about Josh Fox. Um, and uh, I like the bit where he says, you know, how, how he... How he understood pretty quickly. The first time he met Fox, he understood him pretty quickly. Let's hear. So in 2016, uh, in Philadelphia, I met this guy, Josh Fox. He, he did that movie Gasland, right? It's about fracking. So yes. he's super big about fracking. And, uh, you know, I could tell pretty quickly that he was a bit of a grifter. Josh Fox, and that he, he was more about his career and his self-promotion than he really was about anything else. So, yes, Mr. Doerr said he could tell pretty quickly he was a bit of a grifter. Grifter. Yes. Uh, and into his own career. I, you know, listen, sounds good to me. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, and then let's, um, let's, let's hear the second bit of what Mr. Doerr had to say about him. By the way, he has a new show. I shall help promote it for him. It's called uh, Staying Home with Josh Fox. Why would anybody <laughs> name a show something that sounds like a punishment? <laughs> Every so often, the guy who made films exposing the evils of fracking shames you for not voting for candidates who vow to protect fracking. The system's working great, folks. So this is the guy telling you to vote for Joe Biden. Joe Biden, the guy who promises to keep fracking going. His number one issue. <laughs> yeah, so, so that's the context of that is that he... He's now saying, don't support the Green Party, support the Democrats, you know. And as Jimmy Dore says, this is a guy who made a film exposing the evil of fracking, uh, is shaming you into voting for someone who supports fracking, right? And Jimmy Dore can't work out whether he's a, he calls, accuses of being a, of a careerist, trying to rise up to the Democratic Party and a grifter. But you see, there's also... You know, let, let me help. I think I know Josh Fox better than Mr. Doerr. He he's not a careerist. Well, he is a careerist, actually. You're correct. But he, he but one thing I think that comes out of all this is he knows fracking does not poison water, right? That's why he can do this. Uh, 
he made those documentaries, the Gaslam documentaries, because he hates American fossil fuels, he hates modernity, he hates America, uh, and he hates everything about modern America except for himself, and he's the perfect product of modern America. So look, because if fracking was poisoning water, right? There are over a million fracked wells in the United States. We'd all be dead. We'd all be dead. It's not hard, scientifically hard, to prove fracking poisons water, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but if, if a million wells are poisoning the water of America, there is no other issue, right? I mean, he should be out there... Lying down on the road. In front of vehicles, he should be... You mean, he shouldn't be doing plays, he shouldn't be doing... He shouldn't be doing anything. I mean, you're, a, a million wells are... I mean, it's like these... It's a little bit like... It's a little bit like... Do you remember when um, Van Jones... That's right. So Van Jones believed... believed signed, signed a, a petition, petition. Signed a petition. So he's a very smart guy, Van Jones. I mean, he wouldn't be signing petitions that he didn't understand. So he signed a petition basically saying that 9-11 was an inside job. Right? Yeah. Right. Fair enough. No problem, right? Except for... Well, I mean, you're, he's for, entitled to no, his opinion. He's totally entitled to do that. No, no. I'm saying no problem at yeah. all. Yeah. Except for then, when he has the opportunity, he becomes... Wasn't he part of the administration for a while? He becomes part of the administration. Every second of his living, breathing moments when he was part of the administration should have been devoted to, to exposing this extraordinary yeah. thing that America had planned 9-11. Or colluded and so in it. suddenly, though, he's in the administration. It's like not important at all. It's not true at all. So he didn't believe it. Of course he didn't believe it. If it was true, you wouldn't do anything else. You'd do nothing else. You'd do nothing he else. Was in the administration, he was in the administration supporting solar panels and stuff. And it's like, who cares about who solar cares panels? About the American, the American government has have killed have murdered 3,000 innocent, innocent people. Of their, of their own people. And it's like, and, you, and you're going to talk about solar panels right now? So it's, just, it's kind of the same thing. So if Josh Fox for a second believed that the water was being poisoned, yeah, he would be living a different life than the life he's living. But so so just just to sum it up for Mr. Dorr, uh, Josh Fox is is a grifter, uh, but he's actually an ideologue as and well. And a hypocrite. And a hypocrite. And he's an ideologue. And he travels around the world. Uh, that was another thing. He travels around the world. Using lots and lots of fossil fuels. Yes, complaining about fossil fuels. Remember he used to boast, I've shown gas land in 42 states or something. It's like, you didn't walk there, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so in, in other news, are you one of those people across the United States of America who is receiving a mysterious EDD letter in your... In, 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 into your into what's your, EDD? Is that a rectal? So, e, EDD is the Employment Development Department. So anyway, basically what's happened is scammers have been filing bogus claims using random addresses. So we went over to our very good friend, Elizabeth, on Saturday night, Elizabeth, who we'll talk about on another program, mm-hmm. by the way. And Elizabeth, um, unfortunately, is leaving California. And Elizabeth showed us this visual. <laughs> That's quite a... Those are all EDD. All these letters are EDD letters to different names of different people. And this is a, this is only a few of them, Phelan. She told me she oh, threw out... Oh, no, them. she's got rid of tons of them. And so basically, these letters are written to her address. So All these different people to her don't explain. say so the th- name. These are, these are uh, sorry, these are employment benefit applications. So this is this is an application to get money from the government. Unemployment, unemployment yes. money. So from there's the, 70, from the government. over 70 of them. Yeah. So 
all with different names sent to her address. Uh, somebody has been busy applying for them all. And, and I don't know how they choose the addresses, but of course, across the country, there are people, you know, and, and there's lots of reports of this in the media now, that some people got well, 75. Well, I think California is the big one and as well. Sa- and California seems to be the big one. And actually, it's very funny. I don't know if you saw, I, you know, basically on Saturday night, so Ruth, uh, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died on, her, they announced the news on Friday. But on Saturday, Gavin, uh, Governor Newsom decided to publish his um, his inquiry into what was happening with these unemployment benefits and publish it on Saturday night. Oh. And that's what people are c- commenting on that. But basically, the Saturday the, night news drop. But basically, the big news here is that here in California this week, they have shut down all new unemployment insurance claims because of the fact that this scamming thing is going on. But we just looked at a few of these. So basically, the EDD, which is the, 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 the department devoted to paying out huge amounts of money to people. And some of these letters, by the way, have been opened. And I just I thought some of these were quite interesting, by the way. And just not to say the name here, but it's interesting written to this one person again, a made up name, of course. Maximum benefit amount, $17,550. Wow. Weekly benefit amount, $450. Wow. Nice. You know? And there's so 75 basically, of them. Oh, oh, and hundreds of them in different houses. So people are getting tons of these and, and, and checks are being sent out or they're sending out these cards. They send out these like credit card where and what, ha- what has happened is these scammers, they use your address. You get all of these. And if you're not like watching your letterbox, a lot of people have those independent letterbox. Mm-hmm. The scammer comes around and goes into that letterbox and answers it and sends it back and, you know, get, receives, receives the payment. And in fact, another thing is happening where the letterbox is in the person's house. They've broken into people's houses. And they've also posed as EDD officers. And so the advice is if anyone comes to your door and says they're an EDD officer, EDD never, ever, ever go to your door. So if somebody says they are, they're not. Um, But it's a kind of an extraordinary story. Crazy, crazy California. Anyway, we're, 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 the next thing, we need to move on because we've got so much going on today in the show, as you've already, as you already realize. But we, um, I spoke earlier, to Marjorie Daniel Felser, and actually I did this interview before the news of um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death was announced on Friday. And actually, you can imagine that, uh, so Marjorie Daniel Felser, who is the president of the Susan B. Anthony list, um, whose, whose work is very much devoted to ending abortion forever in the United States of America, to overturning Roe v. Wade, to having senators and Congress people elected and presidents elected who mm-hmm. are who fulfill that anti-abortion um, agenda that is that is dear and near to her heart and to ours. Um, so let's go to that interview now and listen to Marjorie. And it's just a wonderful, uh, wonderful interview. I mean, a, I mean a, a great, great woman. Obviously, it was as you say, it was it was recorded just before the, the death was announced. Uh, it'll be interesting. We'll have her back on, I think, to discuss. But I think she's a little bit busy at the moment, Marjorie. I think she's a bit busy at the moment, so let's but let's that. go to that now. Marjorie Daniel Felser is the president of the Susan B. Anthony list. Over the last three election cycles, SBA and their super PAC have reached more than 4.6 million voters by visiting voters in their homes to win, pro-life, the, uh, to win a pro-life White House and secure a pro-life majority in the U.S. Senate. I mean, amazing. She is the national co-chair of the Pro-Life Voices for Trump Coalition, a role she held during the 2016 campaign after securing four groundbreaking pro-life commitments from President Trump. And she is the author of a new book, Life is Winning, Inside the Fight for Unborn Children and Their Mothers. She is a mother of five 
and I am honored to say she is a very dear friend of mine. Welcome, Marjorie. Oh, I love being on your show. I watch you all the time. So it's so fun to be in your room there with your bike and your, <laughs> and your hat. And the hat. You get one of those hats. The hat, the trick with the hat, Marjorie, is that you don't have to have your hair look grace. <laughs> well, you know, let's get on. Like don't worry about it. <laughs> this is so, COVID hair. So honestly, Marjorie, let me make a confession. So basically, this is my marks in the book. And we met recently at one of, one of, at one of the launches of your books in North Carolina. And I, I got the book and you signed it very kindly. And I remember thinking, somewhere in my head, I thought, this is one of those books, you know, that people write who are the head of organizations. And really, someone in the back room wrote it and it wasn't, you know. And then I started reading it. I want to start this interview by just reading the first page which is so you, and I just thought it was so powerful. Just, I think it's really great for people, and I really want to recommend to people that they get this book. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a testimony to courage and to perseverance in an hor a horrible environment, is what I would say. Here's what Marjorie says at the beginning of the book. I am a convert. There was a time when I believed abortion was a good and moral choice. I argued that Roe v. Wade was the linchpin of women's rights. I came dangerously close to choosing abortion for myself. One of the benefits of being a convert is that I recognize the phenomenon in others. We share that. I have had the privilege of meeting thousands of pro-life converts. Some have been women who regret their own abortions. Many have been men who are profoundly ashamed of their failure to support both mother and child. My conversion was akin to what writer Madeleine Longle described as an intellectual acceptance of what my intuition had always known. Some people, however, experience a moment of clarity or a sudden encounter with the truth. Whatever the mechanisms, the process of conversion indelibly transforms one life. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah captures it perfectly, and I just love this. Remember not the events of the past, the things of long ago. Consider not. See, I am doing something new. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Well, I do. <laughs> um, that's an incredible, tell, tell us about your conversion first, please. Well, I think it's very, um, that, that beginning really is uh, in many ways a thanks to my mother and father who, who uh, are still very, uh, what they call pro-choice. Um, yeah. But what they, believe profoundly more than anything that life was a constant search for what is true and um and for me and my brothers that was the gift that they gave us and that took me far away literally and um and in terms of ideas and convictions from where they are now i didn't give them all up because they have beautiful values otherwise but that that hunger that hunger that you have and uh, as well is what gives breathes newness into life when you when you encounter something beautiful that you had not known before, and I encountered it in other people. It, I, I found it in ideas and philosophy without question. I was at Duke and I was pre med, smartest person on the planet, very political, you know, knew better than everybody else did what politics ought to look like. And uh, before you knew it, I uh, chucked all that. Was a philosophy major, met good people who lived what they believed, which was compelling, and also threw away these shallow uh, bumper sticker 
philosophies like my body, my choice, because mm -hmm. just what's unsatisfying. And I think that's the key. Um, unsatisfying isn't bad. In fact, part of us ought to be unsatisfied our entire lives until we're in eternity, because that's the only time that you're going to be completely satisfied. So my conversion was a process of dissatisfaction, unsatisfied, two different things maybe, but encountering the truth in people and ideas that just wouldn't just wouldn't let go. And when I fell, I fell big, like you, you know, the difference between then, the minutes before and the minutes after were enormous, but I still fought it. And I have the feeling, actually, I don't have a feeling, I have a knowledge that's same. you know, I'm never going to be that person doing those things in that place surrounded by those people. Like, that's how I limited I was. Um, and I did every single thing I said I wasn't going to do. <laughs> Just about. Right. So in politics, uh, it became very clear when I was the director of the pro-life caucus in the House that politics and a strong muscular flexing of that was missing at the heart of the pro-life movement. Tobacco farmers had it, but the babies didn't. And we suffer. We have suffered a lot and lost a lot of people because lack of that muscle. Um, I don't mean that nothing else good has been going on because it has, but that's where we set about starting the Susan B. Anthony list. And the book is called Life is Winning. And, you know, we're going to we're going to talk about that and, and, and about the and about what Trump has done. But just before we get to that, I, you know, I have such admiration for you, Marjorie, because I'm reading these stories. So your your idea, Susan B. Anthony, was was politics. You understood, you know, you had political politicians had to go out there and change legislation and had to fight for life. And what, I, what, I, what struck me, one of the things that struck me most about the book was how many times you've had your heart broken and your trust in people shattered. Um, and like the stories are terrible and these are despicable people. I'm sorry, I'm gonna say that. You don't have to say that, but I think these are despicable people who for a expediency went from being, uh, you know, getting help from you, by the way, and getting resources from you to throwing you under the bus over and over and over and over again. Um, can you speak to that? I mean, you have terrible stories in here. It's such a, I, I don't know how you stuck it and, and stomached it. Yeah, I, I think because every single step along the way, even with big disappointments, I think with the right perspective and the right strategy, you can make a gain. For instance, when somebody truly disappoints you, somebody says, this is the death of a child intended for this world. No one can replace this child. They say that with great conviction and with great articulation when they're running for office. And then they act as if this is a dairy price support or tax deductions for office equipment, something to be negotiated away, something that is marginal at best. They deserve to be voted out of office. And I get great satisfaction out of that. And in, in a, you know, I hope it's a true way, it's, it, it, but it is exactly what it's supposed to be. It's to me, when that, it almost, it is close to the amount of pleasure of helping elect somebody who's gonna be that champion, but not, 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 not close enough to be <laughs> um, uh, to be part of my psyche, I hope. But when you defeat somebody who has said this, and um, and you uh, and then there's a lesson for all the world. 
that this is what happens when you say this is who you are. And then their, their next turn is to go into the private sector and the public sector is not accessible to anymore. That is important. That is an important step forward within the context of where we're supposed to be. One thing I am, I know you are, um, impatient. I am impatient yeah. for the result, and I'm impatient with uh, in in getting results. So a lot of those results are semi demi results. They're they're important in building through the process. And one one thing that is a constant inspiration to me is the other successful human rights movements in, in America and how they uh, found victory um, with a zigzag path that was relatively similar. Um, and part of it is is the uh, extracting of of um, punishments <laughs> and uh, and praising the winner. So you know, also so say so in one example, there was a senator who you know is all that pro life senator, and uh, we waited for months and months and months to say that he would take on the twenty week pancake bill. Okay, this guy's a, a hero. Um, and, and other and and his speech and, and what he says he's going to do waited forever never got never got to yes on spons on on him being the lead sponsor of the twenty week pen capable bill the most modest thing back then it everyone was like sure. oh this is too aggressive this is like no one will you know we don't even know if it's constitutional people it's bizarre to think of now but then that was the conversation among senators that are friends and people who are pro life. And um, so we just never got to yes. So what do we do? We went to Senator Lindsey Graham and said, uh, Senator, we need a strong lead sponsor of this bill. And you're like, absolutely. And I said, well, you know, as a constitutional scholar, there, there's this little debate over here in the cloakroom about the constitutionality of this bill, right? He said, yeah, you know, with the vote, the only important um, issue on the table is how are they going to vote, yes or no? This is on the table, and they're asked to vote yes or no on a five-month limit. Um, that's that's the only question that anybody has to resolve. And yes, I'll pick that up and I'll take it. It's that sense of of of, do, of not being bogged down in over analysis, weighing back and forth, and the idea that someone might object because it's unconstitutional is it, it is bizarre. If you know that this is a death of a precious one. It's very interesting for me reading the book and just realizing the number of times you've had to deal with some, I, I, as I said, I think it's really despicable, very unprincipled behavior. Um, people turning, you know, turning, you know, after promising you things and then throwing you under the bus and not doing things like just, and the number, like the names are, there's so many of them, but I, it brings us on quite nicely to the fact that, you know, as you say, and I'm quoting the book, I never imagined a playboy real estate tycoon from New York City who was in the news the year SBA's lists launch for divorcing his wife and marrying his mistress who two months before the wedding had given birth with child. You never imagined that that would be your champion. And, you know, when, you th when I look at the, num the number, the names that you mention in this book, like very pure kind of people, right? but who then did, I think, really despicable things. It's sort of interesting what happened with Trump. I mean, how bizarre. If you didn't believe in God before, you know, it really is one of those stories. It's almost biblical that uh, he was the last person on our list, literally. Uh, we, we fought him in South Carolina, we fought him in Iowa, anybody, but any one of these 17 stars, you know, anyone but him. And, um, and 
And I, I, I see now more what you're getting at when you say all these disappointments, all these, like my boss, my former boss, yes, you know, down, yep. and he gave me great pleasure to defeat him. He was this guy who taught me, if you're going to, if you're going to um, shoot a bear, you have to kill it. Yes. One of the best lessons I ever learned, learned in politics. And you, and you shot him. And he, and he was defeated. So, um, but he was, and he was right. So look, you're looking at this playboy tycoon and, um, and he's decided he's going to be pro-life. Like, Right. Okay. And so we go through this. I loved being wrong. It's the time I've loved being wrong most in my entire life that he was incapable of being the person that he said he was going to be. But what I didn't know yet was that this is a guy not cast in the general unusual political mode. He's a guy who's really more like the apprentice. Like I'm going to set out to do this thing and I'm going to do it. And um, and this is not a moment of negotiations of negotiations is backward and forward. I've got to be true to my word or I'm not going to be able to be trusted in, the, in this deal. And I think more so in politics, he's been successful in that. So we, we just we. So when it came to the moment where it looked like he's going to be the guy, um, he is the guy unless somebody came in and I don't know, did some illegal thing and made themselves the uh, the um, the nominee. We've got it. We've. Uh, basically, in his sort of language, got up a contract, basically, and said, "We, um, I am happy, pro-life coalition, if you will put in writing these strong four commitments, and they were the court, Planned Parenthood, paying capable bill, and the HUD and, and taxpayer funding of abortion." In strong language, he and Kellyanne read it. Kellyanne, you know, so we've got people like Kellyanne coming on board, yes. and the vice president coming on board, makes these commitments. And so then we have a choice to make, like we all remember, and it was between Hillary Clinton and him. So in my house divided, it was a war. My children hated him like I had formerly. And I'm looking at a policy choice and, uh, and, our, and our responsibility and to either lead or not lead on, on the most important human rights battle in, in our nation. And so endorsing him and leading that coalition, as I still do, was the only choice. And I'll never forget the morning of that resolution or the night before. And I was asked to go on NPR um, morning edition to talk about this because, you know, nobody wanted to talk about it. Even the vice president was in hiding at that point, the vice president to be. And, um, and I just thought, you know, this is, they don't, not going to receive it as a gift, but this interview is going to be a gift to my children. I want them to understand why this decision is being made, why I'm making this decision, and um, and and why it's the only choice that can be made, in in my assessment. And uh, and thank God, man, we were we were right. He turned out to be the only president in my uh, the only president that has not only followed through on his promises, but has gone way beyond. In the general, he. He got stronger. He didn't get weaker after he won the primary. He got stronger. Even before the inauguration, we were meeting with him and the, and the vice president and others uh, to, to figure out, not meeting with him about the cabinet, I won't be truthful, about with him and the vice president's team about who would be, who, who the pro-life slate looks like to be cabinet secretaries, undersecretaries, identifying all those positions where pro-life people need to be and it happening in every case. It just was astounding. And, and I'm still astounded at how wrong I was and how happy I am. It's interesting. One thing, and you, ha you have it in the book, and I remember, I don't know if we ever talked about that before, but 
um, you know, so he, he behaves like a convert and he's recognizable because early on, and you remember, and you have this in the book, early on, when he literally, shortly after he converted and realized, uh, you know, the truth about abortion, you know, he was asked by someone, I don't know the context, but he was asked, but what about the women? And he quite, you know, quickly said, oh yeah, they should all be locked up, some version of that, or they should go to prison or whatever. What's really interesting, when we heard that, Phelan and I heard that, we were like, oh God, he's sincere. Because, no, he's sincere because the jury in the Gosnell case were all chosen to not be pro-lifers, right? They were chosen to be pro-choicers or neutral. And when they heard the evidence and were asked afterwards, when they were asked after sitting through that trial and realizing what Gosnell had done, realizing what abortion was, they said the women should be prosecuted. And we recognize in that moment that that's what happens when you are, and, and you say it in the book very well, that in that instant moment when you, when, the, when you realize, oh my God, that's what abortion is. Your knee-jerk reaction is to think that the women are somehow at fault. For me, it actually proved how sincere he was. He wasn't being clever. So, yeah, so in that moment, yeah, you realize, oh, yeah, that is, of course, then it's this level of horror. Of course yeah. it has. And think about other human rights violations that our country has experienced. If you experience a, um, uh, the hosing down of Blacks in Selma, or you witness children um, in 12-hour workdays, uh, and the and the and the bosses over them, um, or um, any manner of beatings of, yes. of innocent people um, in in the history of slavery. Your immediate reaction is like, kill the bastards, get out of there. He was treating those, he was treating those people. Get them out of there. Your your first and good and true pure instinct is stop it, yeah. and never do it again. And the only way to keep you from doing that is to punish you. Now yeah. that. Yeah, that's not where we are in the pro-life movement, but it is. I think, um, yeah, but I think, and, and I think exactly as you say, I think it shows though that he was very sincere and that he obviously it's been, uh, you know, a very, as they say, that, that horrible phrase, a teachable moment. I mean, he really has learned an awful lot and has come an awful long way. I want to go back to you though. You're a, you're a convert to Catholicism, which is, you know, which is a really, a, a, it's a big deal. Actually, so you're the reverse of Mike Pence, actually. So he, yeah. he, he, yeah, so he left Catholicism and went to the Evangelical Church. You left the Episcopalian Church and became a Catholic. Um, and I, you know, I mean, by the way, I'm realizing you and I could talk for about three hours about all of this stuff. What have you thought of the Catholic Church's leadership on abortion? Yeah, so speaking from the zeal of a convert, which I think uh, Trump is on the abortion issue. Like I still, even though it's been a lot of years, I, I still pray that I don't leave, uh, leave that behind. Um, that spur that I originally thought was true is still true, but e I understand the fullness of it even more. And therefore, uh, it is a primary responsibility of the Catholic Church to meet this issue at the heart of the church in the beautiful ways that Mother Teresa and Pope John Paul spoke to fail to speak up at this moment, um, which many, which many are, uh, and I mean, they think they are. That's the problem. They think they are, but they're not. I mean, there is a lot of beautiful communication on the part of a lot of bishops, but there, but there's a lot of fear for going way out there on the limb. They what they consider way out on the limb, the way out on the limb that it took to oppose 
um, all sorts of other crimes in, in our nation that eventually they did get around to. But, uh, but it, there ought to be a, there, there ought to be a conference right now. There ought to be a, uh, where, where they're, where they're getting together, deciding what can we do to make sure that the election has a pro-life result. And Joe Biden is calling himself a devout Catholic. Nancy Pelosi apparently is a devout Catholic. Um, and, a, and, you know, go back a little bit. Governor Tom Ridge apparently was a devout Catholic from Erie, Pennsylvania, who became the governor of Pennsylvania on a pro-choice ticket. Um, you know, should they be called out? I mean, what, what do you think? How, how is this possible that Joe Biden is, is a devout Catholic and yet has this... Oh, there's some courageous bishops saying right now that you can't vote, um, you can't vote for uh, a, a de Democrat in this environment because, by definition, this is this is who they are. This is who they stand for. They can't. They don't stand for. And in certainly the case, it's just, it's just so, um, so evil as to, as to think that the pure evil is active when when a when a Biden says he's a devout Catholic and he has deconverted from being pro-life to being for making us pay for it. Not only will not only is he good with it all happening up until birth, he also wants us to pay for it, be culpable in the act of killing a child intended for this world. That's evil. And that is the role of the church is to preach the gospel and the goodness and um, which includes the evil uh, yeah. so calling them out every time. You know, I was super disappointed by the Catholic Church in Ireland when we had this recent referendum. Unfortunately, as you probably know, Ireland is the only country on the planet Earth that has voted where the people voted for abortion. It's the only country. And we have, I mean, what an amazing distinction we have there. But the Catholic Church kept quiet. They did not take a leadership role. Um, and I think we have abortion in Ireland because of that. Um, very, very disappointing. So it'll be interesting to see what they do here. But they are, they are, I would say in the main, they're not, they're not making that much noise, the Catholic Church so far. I think that I really believe that that will change. But the reason like, for, for reasons that I, th I think it'll change if, if, uh, if it's taken in hand. And I think it was taken in hand in our country with great effort. Uh, it has taken a while. The reason that life is winning in America is that it's been made at the highest levels a national conversation and in our in our country it has taken and it still and it was still requires a um it has uh, a national level conversation that the president continues that it doesn't get buried among every other most important issue that ever was right yeah and and the and the church that has to it, it making it even more so a national level conversation i think in i think in ireland um the bad guys got the upper hand because there were, I believe there wasn't a true understanding of what was really yes. happening in front of them. And now they do. And I, and I hope there's a backlash. You talk in the book beautifully um, about David Delighton, and I really appreciated that. I, he's, a, he's a major favorite of mine. And we've, I've traveled on the road with him, and I just love how you talk about him, the man behind the videos that sparked a national conversation on late-term abortion. Um, and you just, you know, I mean, obviously, he's just a, he's a, a national treasure. It's incredible what he did. How do you think his work has impacted the pro-life movement? Well, um, it's the same dynamic that I think I was trying to describe with all the other successful human rights movements. The abortion issue has a particularly difficult visual argument to make, meaning it's hard to make a visual argument as in art and every other place to see, to feel, to experience the horror um, is a deeply personal thing. 
women have experienced this horror. And that's why women are polling, I think, more pro-life than men. But the, the public in, at large hasn't seen the beatings, hasn't seen the lynchings, hasn't seen the equivalent for the, for the child. David's work um, at least described the horror. And through the words of people who were, who were doing the work, who were doing the work of cutting up the babies themselves, the haunting images of the Planned Parenthood and the middleman uh, harvesting the parts of the baby, talking about, oh, this looks like they're twins as she's putting them in the freezer. Um, these are haunting um, moments that shouldn't be forgotten. And I, and you know, one of my favorite parts that I write about in the book is is about um, you know he's going after Planned Parenthood, of course, because they're the primary culprit. And another one of those disappointing nights that I think led to a backlash was the night where we finally got a vote, a majority or minor, a fifty-one vote <laughs> goal in defunding Planned Parenthood, and we're there until midnight. Midnight passes. We don't know how John McCain, um, who we helped, we you know we all ran as a pro-life presidential candidate long ago, um, whether what he's going to do, and we're waiting. The vice president comes over to, and like, yeah, I think we have the votes. You know, he's the president of the Senate. That's his role. So it's mm -hmm. his job to be there in case there's a tie. He's all set to break the tie. All set. And moments later, like. Out of the blue, everyone thinks he's voting the right way, and he gives a thumbs up to Durbin and votes the wrong way, and now we are still funny. And so David was with us. I, I brought him there because I wanted him to see the moment that he had made possible by the passage of the bill to defund Planned Parenthood, finally, and then, and then that. But, you know, all of these things are not pure defeats. There's always a victory there. And the victory was the outrage, the outrage. And nobody wants to be, bless his soul, nobody wants to be that guy. For me, I was so disappointed by Carly Fiorini. Um, so when I remember meeting her the first time, and, and I was so impressed because here was somebody pro-life running and she had been successful in California. And I thought, wow, that's incredible. You know, I just was really bowled over by it. And I know I've met um, supporters of her here and I had to actually break the news to a big supporter of hers, a supporter of yours here in California who didn't know what had recently happened. Um, and just for everyone who maybe doesn't know, she has decided to support Joe Biden. And I just um, was reading an Atlantic interview she did. And in that interview, she says, we're not making progress, she says. And in answer to this other question, they asked her, you know, Biden is a devout Catholic and he struggled with his own position, but he's moved towards fewer restrictions, not more. And she says, I think this is a great example of an opportunity to lead rather than just playing politics. He could do that. He could lead. He could problem solve. He could find common ground on a bipartisan basis. In other words, she completely doesn't answer the question. Um, what what was it like for you to discover that she has decided to 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 work with Joe Biden and to help him become the president of the United States if that if that happens? You know, it's interesting. I haven't told anybody this yet. Uh, yeah, and I thank you for sending the, that to me. Today. I had not seen that um, when when this book was almost done. Um, I sent it to her to because we talk about her a lot in there as a hero that she was. Yes, and after the you know, endorse it or whatever. Just also wanted to, and there's just kind of a flat no. I'm like, that is not, because I 
I know her well, and I've spent a lot of time with her. And and that just seemed extremely odd. Like, wow, are you, what's some some missing something? And the next thing I hear, this happens. So I think she was extremely hurt by this president. She would resent me putting it like this, but she was extremely hurt and um, by this president. And I and she really tried to convince me to not get involved in this race, even at the general election point. Um, and it was before we had endorsed and uh, just truly believed this was the most uncivil act that could be for this president to be and didn't see it like every other person that I think has her convictions on this issue did, which is there was this choice between two policies. Yes. Which one are you going to choose? So now what do you do? What do you do when you see the Supreme Court tipping in our favor, Roe versus Wade coming unbound at the seams potentially within months, potentially? And you know that you've endorsed the other guy who will definitely not let that happen. What do you say to yourself? There is nothing that you can say. Everything that comes out of your mouth is going to sound ridiculous, which that is absurd, what she said. The idea, it's an opportunity. Yeah, it's an opportunity for Kermit Gosnell to come out and work at a crisis pregnancy center also. But I doubt that's going to happen. And I know that this will not happen with this, with this, um, with Biden and Kamala. I mean, it's it's just absurd, and I don't. When it's something is that absurd, you you come up with crap like that. It's very disappointing, and I know this this the, this guy who's a supporter of yours, a, a big supporter of ours, like he was devastated. You know, he considered himself a friend of hers, and you know, I, I was the one who broke the news to. I thought everyone knew about it. It's funny; it, it probably hasn't gotten as much press as maybe she had hoped. But um, yeah, it's 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 so disappointing, I and mean, that that's why I say this is this book is you know is a testament to to courage and tenacity and you know and stick atness. But I think the stakes are so high, as you and I both know, the stakes are so high, and you know at the center of this is 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 a baby who can't speak for himself or herself, and who is the victim of the most appalling violence that is imaginable. Um, and no, just so many people just don't seem to know that. Do in many ways because of you and David. Without you and David, we would not have had that Planned Parenthood vote. Without you, we would not have uh, we would not have had the people that when your movie came out, there were people members of Congress that have not talked to me in years because every time they see me coming, they think I'm going to ask them to do something difficult, yes. and I can name stop. Um, what happened after your movie was they came up to me. I feel so guilty, in, in the words of one congressman, I feel so guilty that I have not done anything about this in so many years. I just need to know what to do right now. And that's what I, people coming off the sidelines who've been sitting there forever, you know, and then with what the governor of, uh, and, and then what you set in place, and then what David did, and then what the governor of Virginia did, and the governor of New York did. It's, it's making the, it, it's, uh, public notice that this is happening under your very eyes are yes. you going to sit on the sidelines or are you not that's why life is winning it's because you can't avoid it anymore you can't yeah. right in front of you and because it's been made a national conversation and that's why those disappointments aren't devastating carly's devastating my old boss is devastating all these little setbacks from john mccain was devastating but because life is winning it's it's just part of the 
of the canvas. It's all paint on a canvas and it's getting to end up being something truly beautiful. I totally agree with you. And I think you're, yeah, it's actually right. I'm going to segue because we always ask people some other questions um, about themselves to kind of share something about themselves that people might know about you. So on your, first of all, I, I learned something new about you today myself. On your Twitter bio, it says that you wish you had a dog. <laughs> yes. This is for the benefit of my husband who is not on Twitter. But every once in a while, somebody says, that's really weird that your wife says, one day, I'm going to have one. I want a dog, but instead of that, I've got two cats and a possum now. We've now, uh, we've got a, a possum that's visiting all the time. Cats and possums are kind of the same animal. Yeah, they're nice though. The po and the possum is kind of wild and he's outside and he comes up at night and he's just lovely. We ask all of our guests for their go-to recipe that they're famous for in their house. Um, what do you cook, Marjorie? It's such a joke because it is so lowbrow. Um, it's it's meatloaf. That's all they, they want it. I cook it. It's actually really fantastic. It's just uh, Italian breadcrumbs and ketchup and um, a little egg and some um, ground beef. And that's really all it is. And I think, oh, and I say, well, don't tell people that's the favorite thing that I cook that you like. Because it's so a one one night I I. I dressed up to be the best meatloaf maker. I put curlers in my hair and was wearing a bathrobe and shoes. So that's the whole image that my family has carved out for me. And so I make a pretty mean meatloaf. Well, actually, we may have to have a meatloaf cook-off in your house one of these days, Marjorie, because I'm quite famous for meatloaf in my house. And can I just tell you, when we did the Gosnell movie, we had rewards. We had these kind of unusual rewards. One of them was uh, we, we said, we'll bring you on a, on a pub crawl in Dublin. And it cost $10,000. You had to get to Dublin yourself. You had to pay for your own hotel. A fabulous couple who I think you probably know as well from Oklahoma, dear friends of ours, took that up and have remained friends of ours to this day because they loved it. But I also offered a meatloaf for $3,000. Guess, and like five people bought it. One of whom, yeah, one of whom was Mike Gallagher. Yeah, we're in the interview and he's saying whatever. I'm just looking, he says, I'm looking through the rewards. Oh, you make a meatloaf? Oh yeah, I'm gonna buy that right now. And he was one of the people, he got the meatloaf for $3,000. So you and I have the same relationship with meatloaf. This is something I would never have known before today. This is super important. All right, let's have a meatloaf off and we'll do it online. I love it. We'll, I'm, I'm, that's a date. We, we're gonna do this. We, your people need to talk to my people. The next question I have is, what piece of art inspires you and that could be a poem it could be a piece of sculpture it could be a movie it could be anything i have a feeling that it's others as well it's rembrandt's prodigal son it was a revolution that made, that painting was to me it's so riveting it's the whole story of grace and redemption forgiveness um it's just beautiful the father is in light um kindness uh, the son who's always been a good son, never did anything wrong, has always been supportive and helpful, standing behind him, grimacing, unhappy in the dark. And then the son, the prodigal son on his knees, devastated, crying. Oh, I can hardly get through it. Wow. Looking for forgiveness. And my image is always too, like right before that, not long before it was his father, was standing at the end of the fence singing, waiting for him to return one day, always waiting, always with faith and hope and love. And as soon as he comes back, he's just enveloped in his arms and welcomed and celebrated. To me, that is the story of, of, the, of the beautiful relationship that God wants to have with us. It makes me think of a funny, a story that'll make you laugh. 
So I hadn't been in the church for a while and there's a church in Santa Monica called St. Monica's. My mother's name was Monica. So Monica is very important to me, right? And I haven't been in the church for a while and I went there and this is a few years ago and I go in and the priest comes out and it's, it's almost like, um, you know, one of those setups and he does, uh, he does, he does this thing where he says, you're there, you're not sure you should be here. You should be here. You haven't been here for a long time, but we're, we want you here. We're, we, and he start, you know, you may be questioning yourself about why you're here. No, you're meant to be here. We've been waiting for you. And it goes on and on and on and, and, and it talks about St. Monica. Of course, I then become this complete wreck and I'm kind of crying my eyes out, sitting there. And I'm like, you know, and I'm in the church, you know, and quietly and the, all the rest of the people. And I'm, you know, doing that. <laughs> the, the really loud noise and I'm thinking these people must think I'm a complete fruitcake and then a song then the song you know the, the, the first hymn is, is sung and the hymn is something like come back come back and, and I'm thinking this is just there's cameras somewhere here this is extraordinary so I you know I was a bit of the I was a bit of the prodigal son myself yeah you you can call yourself a convert too right if that's the I mean that is that's what it, and I think conversion is every day you know, every yes. day, if we're really in a search for truth, we're going to fall to some sort of beautiful truth. If we're in the pursuit of it every day, we will. And you're so right. You're the evangelist for art. And uh, I'm very grateful for that. I'm going to finish today with just reminding. I want to I want to just tell people about how you and I met, because I really love that story. I have I hope I'm going to have no problem getting through telling the story without <laughs> becoming a mess, because I often tell people this story and I have difficulties telling it. Um, so when we started doing the, the, the Gosnell movie, and I was doing a lot of this research, reading what the grand jury had heard, reading the transcripts from the trial, speaking to people who had been in the clinic, people who had um, grandmothers who had lost grandchildren and, knew, and found that out, found out that the, that the feet in the jars were the feet of a grandchild that, that a woman had, had lost. Um, and, at, and one of the rewards for giving money to the Gosnell movie was $10,000, and I would come to where you were and give a speech. And a very kind lady, that a friend of ours in North Carolina, was one of those people. And she arranged a little event. And she had, Rick Santorum was there, right? And, you know, but very small little event, like 20 people. Um, and you were there. And I kind of gave a speech with all this raw knowledge that I had just acquired about what abortion was and what had happened to these children and about baby boy A and how important his life was and how he could change the whole world. And uh, I was raw and I was and, and you came up immediately afterwards and sort of said, uh, I'm going to pray for you. And and I was like, and we just had that. I don't know what happened to you and I, but I just it was such I just loved you from the first time I ever met you as a, I was like just a beautiful thing. And you were running off as usual, jumping on a plane <laughs> and you got you ran off. And you, I think you must have given me we must have exchanged telephone numbers. And as, as you got on the plane, and I don't know if you remember this, you texted me and said that you had been in touch with the prayer warriors, said your group of prayer warriors and that you had them praying for me. And I wrote back and I said to you, I felt it. <laughs> And I did, and um, and we have been friends, you know, obviously through the Gosnell movie, but we'll be friends forever. I'm sorry to tell you that, that you're not going to get rid of me that easily. It's um, one of the blessings of my life. I can feel that. Look, when when you communicate with the ability that you do, you're completely transparent, which has probably plagued you, right? And so um, it was so. It was so. I knew that my life was going to be different after that point. I couldn't 
there for, for in a new way i knew that this was from such evil and that there is no no um faltering there's no faltering and and i and i hope you don't mind me saying this but on uh, here but it was so obvious the enemy um uh trying to weasel his way uh and which he will in moments like this it reminded me so much of the exorcist that I actually i called my friend whose husband wrote it you don't even know this no this, this is who i called um and, and that she's on a team of of people that pray and um and she she knows what that is and she knows that when you get that close to evil that you you have to be surrounded by love and prayer so she gets it. We're going to talk again, Marjorie. I want to do this again. This has been so great. I'm really next time wine. Next time wine and next time. And I think this cook-off is a thing that we need. Our people need to talk to our people. Now, what do you pair with meatloaf? Oh, I'd put a very, I would put a very big red in there. <laughs> I, would, I would put a big full-bodied red in there is what I would do with that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, All right, that sounds fantastic. Oh. Thanks so much, Martin. If you're listening to this podcast and you're not... And we have the book there. And we have it? the book there. Oh, actually, just another thing, and I meant to say that, and I wrote to Marjorie. This is the book, and by the way, look at all my marks here because I just love the book so much. You can get this book everywhere you get books online right now, so there's an e-version of it, and it's also on Amazon, so um, I'd highly recommend it. It is incredible. It's really a testimony, actually, I think also to Marjorie's ability to deal with all these politicians who are extremely disappointing. Um, so many of them who were extremely disappointing, who made pledge pledges to her and yeah. then decided to change their mind. Yeah. But the other thing I was going to say was that at the very end of the podcast, she mentions this beautiful painting, The Prodigal Son by Rembrandt. And if you are listening on the podcast, it's really worth going online and looking up that painting. Very, very beautiful. Um, and it's interesting that it's That's the prodigal right. son because I just remembered that Philip and I were over with our very dear friends, shout out to the Armenians over there, our Armenian friends who, we had this huge conversation about the prodigal son because they've had an argument about it, yeah, right? Somebody has a different One of them, the wife, and we won't call out names or anything, but the wife is very unhappy with the prodigal son story and the yeah. husband thinks it's great. But we had, but obviously it's it's a very provocative story because... You know, because people feel sorry for the good brother, yes. the good guy who stayed at home and whatever, and then the big party is yeah. organized. And That's you know, right. anyway, Sarah, we're coming to the end of the show, but we can't end the show, however, oh. without going to Phelan's dessert. So the other day, this started about a week ago. Phelan started acting very mysteriously um, and asking me about, you know, do we have flour, you know, in the house? Do we have sugar? You know, really odd. And uh, I was saying yes, whatever. And then he decided that he had this dessert he had read about. Tell us more, Philip. Of course, I'm standing here without the menu, without the recipe. In Don't worry about the recipe because I can help people with the recipe and okay. the recipe will be up in the show notes. Right. So I'm going to try and remember uh, yeah, what uh, what I was doing. So, flour, so Philip, you had flour, flour and, and, butter. and butter. You yes. started with the flour and the butter. Yes. Um, and you can see this now. We're going to go and look at these pictures. So you can see Philip mixing the flour and the butter. Yes. How much, right? how much flour? And I think we had a, we had, um, a cup of flour yes. and I think we had... 125 about, grams of butter. About 125 grams of butter. And you butter. mix it up and you try and get it as crumbly as possible. Make it look like breadcrumbs. Yes. Then you, you added add oats. Oats, sugar and ground, uh, the secret. Oh, the secret ingredient. 
chopped up hazelnuts. Get the knife. So Phil got the knife chop, out. Chop, chop, you can chop, see chop, Phil chop. on the knife out. We had an argument about this because I don't think doing that on a flat surface is great because the, the nuts start to roll away. But anyway, he chop, chop, chop. We throw that all in and create a crumble. Yes. And then what was what was the fruit? Oh, the fruit used? then. The, uh, the app, my first time using the apple corer. So we realized we had an apple corer. And do you know what? Are they good or not? They are. They're pretty good. They're now. pretty good because you really need to core the apple. Yeah. Push. Oh, oh it's come in at the wrong angle. <laughs> so apple cores, blueberries, don't forget to wash them and put them down no, and lay them down. Just correct that again now there. They're not, they're blackberries. You know. And by the way, can I just say Blackberries, blueberries, that's why it shows I'm colourblind. Blackberries are absolutely fabulous. Gorgeous, gorgeous. Anyway, none of the fruit needs to be stewed in advance, by the way, which I think is a huge benefit. Mm-hmm. Then you just spread the crumble on top. Look at this and me tell and your story. Yeah, tell your story. Spread the crumble on top. I was Slightly unhappy with how crumbly it was. I think what happened was, oh yeah, you throw water in at the end. Oh, this the is a, also I, a secret film. I think I put in too much water and it bound up too much. I was slightly unhappy with, I'd like it to very, be very sparing with the water, very sparing. Like a tablespoon of yes, water. I put in too much. And uh, then spread it on, tro- on top of the fruit and, uh, oh, cinnamon, don't forget the cinnamon. Oh, don't forget the cinnamon, yeah. Like a little bit of, what, like a shake of cinnamon, yes. not, a, not a huge amount because you don't want it to overdominate. Yes. And then spread it over, and then a little cheat. Uh, I felt there was a few gaps, and I felt it was so I just sprinkled a little bit of granola. granola. And do that if you feel like you haven't covered the surface, it's a great cheat at the last minute. Yeah. And then we had the oven heated to 350, and you put it in there for how long? Phil? 45 minutes, 40 minutes. And, and can I just say, so this has been cooked twice already since we uh, since Phelan discovered this, um, and you can see the finished product. And I'm actually showing the finished product that we used, the most recent one, and then the one we used. After that, we th- th- yeah. there's two versions of it there. You can see, absolutely total winner. By the way, like total, total winner. winner. And it's interesting. So hazelnuts are meant for blackberries in the same way that you have your almonds are made for rhubarb. Um, unbelievable. Thank anyway, you for that. Highly, oh God, uh, gorgeous. If, if and I, by the way, can I just say, after we record this, you know what we're going to do? I'm going to make lunch, and we're going to have that dessert again. You can serve it with whipped cream and uh, vanilla ice cream. What's or, the, what's the, we need to tell people the recipe for whipped okay, cream. That's, a, that's Phelan's joke against people, um, a number of Americans that have come to our house who seem to uh, have a talk, talk about what's the recipe for whipped cream. They're disabled, Dan. And it's, no, no, it's a kind of a weird thing. No, I, th- I don't know what it is, but basically there you, is no... You get cream, in Ireland, In Ireland, whipped cream is, is exactly what it sounds like. It's cream whipped. Okay, we're going to stop right now. No, no, I want to keep going, but no, I, we're no. going to stop. Okay. So just remember, everyone, thank you so much for everything. Thank you for your comments. And by the way, please leave a comment if you can, because we've had a few trolls around and they cause all kinds of difficulties to our star rating. Yeah. And please don't forget to donate if you can to Obamagate the movie, ObamagateMovie.com, ObamagateMovie.com. We are a five hundred one c three, so all your donations, if you're in the United States of America, are tax deductible. And that's it for this week. Thanks so thank much. You. Bye. Bye.